You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Caroline. And Mason. And today we're talking with Esther Wojcicki. But first, I'd love to introduce you to Mason Pasha, who recently joined our team to lead our marketing efforts. You can read more about Mason on the gettingsmart.com team page. Mason, tell me about the values of your family that have impacted your life and career today. Thanks for the introduction, Caroline. Excited to be a part of the GS team. My parents are both artists, a painter and an architect, so I had creativity instilled from a pretty young age, and also a lot of different self-starter bones in my body. So kind of moving forward, I did a lot of passion-based work, and there was a lot of encouraged failure and the effort to try everything. I love that. I think we had a lot of that in our family, too, where we were encouraged to try and success didn't always have to be the outcome that just sort of the journey was part of uh, our value system. And I think that's really why um, I resonate with Esther's message. Her new book, How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results, uh, Esther spends time outlining the values of successful homes. They can also be attributed to schools, programs, and companies as well. And she uses a method that she calls TRIC, which stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. While honing her craft as an educator, Wajeki was raising three daughters using the same principles. In this podcast, Esther discusses teaching her children independence, modeling the important behavior, setting expectations, learning failure, and traveling. Let's listen to Tom and Esther discuss her career and her lessons outlined in her new book. Esther Wojeki, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. What? Uh, what an absolute treat to have you on. It was really great to see you last week in San Diego. I really love that conference, you know, ASU, GSV, and I really had a great time meeting lots of lots of friends, including you. We're remarking that there are about a thousand of our, of our good friends standing together in the lobby. It is like a giant reunion. That's right. It's about a thousand. Really, it was incredible. I mean, I couldn't move maybe three feet, and then I met somebody else that I really liked. So, um, and then I was hoping to see so, yeah, I think I just need to spend more time there also. Esther, I, I very frequently refer to you as the world's best journalism teacher. And I, I want to talk about um, where this started. And I, I learned recently that you started very early as a, as a paid journalist. What was your first writing assignment? Well, I started really early as a paid journalist. I was 14 years old. Um, and I somehow had the courage to go and talk to the people at this little newspaper called the Sunland Tahunga Record Ledger. And I needed a job, and I wasn't very good at doing any of the other things that most teenagers were doing, like, you know, working in a grocery store or dress shop or something. And so I went there and applied for a job, and um, these guys were kind of shocked, and uh, but they were really happy to see me, which was really nice. Um, because they decided to hire me, um, and they said they would help train me, which I thought was wonderful, and they would pay me three cents a word. Now, most people would get very excited about three cents a word, but I was pretty excited. And so that's where my career started, and I actually first started writing, um, they first trained me how to write obituaries, (laughs) which is kind of (laughs) terrible. (laughs) 
Do you still read obituaries? Um, <laughs> every now and then I read them. But the ones that they, uh, they wanted funny. me to, to write were kind of like, you know, personality features, only I couldn't interview the person that was in this feature. You know, they were already dead. But and, and- <laughs> And while you were busy becoming uh, your high school valedictorian, you were also the editor of the newspaper. I'm guessing there was a good English teacher behind that. Do you recall having a, a good uh, writing instruction in high school? Um, actually, I, I had a good English journalism teacher, um, and she, she encouraged me um, a lot. You know, and I, I had no idea. It's kind of interesting what a fog you're in when you're a teenager. I didn't realize that, you know, I really had any talent whatsoever. Um, but she encouraged me. And, yeah, I became editor of my high school newspaper. And it was a very tiny little paper. It didn't look anything like any newspapers, you know, really looked like. But it was fun. And I had a good time. And, um I mean, I'm not sure I really learned a lot of writing styles, but I learned enough, and it empowered me. But it was, um, I think you and I share this sense that these production experiences, the, you know, good writing on a deadline for a public audience, that that's super valuable experience that you had and must have been formative because you've spent 40 years helping uh, other people have those kind of experiences. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, I think journalists learn skills that are so important for life, which is one of the reasons right. why I use it as a teaching tool. Um, I, I think more kids should have that opportunity and not just... Yeah. Well, I do too. Did, um, you went to Berkeley. Did you have good writing experiences there? So at Berkeley, I had pretty good writing experiences also. I had a double major of English literature, which was basically American lit, and then political science. And I had to write all the time in all those classes. But also, I continued to write for the Berkeley Daily Gazette because I still needed to earn money. I, I was a poor student, so uh, and somehow I seemed to see newspapers as a way to earn money. I don't know why that happened to me, but it worked out. And so I did that at the same time as going to school. And why why did you study French at the Sorbonne? Well, I moved. Um, I got married early. Um, I was like, unfor- well, fortunately, I guess, or whatever. I'm still married to the same guy that I picked back then when I was 20. Um, Another super smart human being, yeah, Stanley. Stanley, right? yeah, super smart human being. And he got a, a fellowship, National Foundation, National Science Foundation fellowship to go to Europe. And so we moved to Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, and I didn't speak a single word of, Swiss, of French, but I learned it really quickly wow. over there and um, at the University of Geneva. And I enrolled in the School of International Relations. And the, I must say it was a fantastic program there. And then I moved from there to Paris, to the Sorbonne. And at this point, I already spoke French. And so that's why I went to Europe, to Paris, and uh, had a wonderful time. I must say it was a great experience. We're going to come back and talk about having kids and uh, raising extraordinary women. But I want to fast forward to Palo Alto High School. Uh, I think you showed up there in the fall of, was it 84 or 85? 84. 
in the fall of and 1984. Yeah. 84. <laughs> what, what was the state of student writing and particularly journalism in the state of fall of 84? Well, there were some very exciting kids. They were excited kids, I should say, um, who were excited that I came. Um, the program was pretty small. There were about 19 students in the program, and the newspaper was small. It was between – it was every, on a regular basis. It came out every couple of weeks, and it was six pages long. It was your typical high school newspaper. The back page was a, a calendar, so really we had just um, four – five pages at the most um, for us to – for the kids to write anything. Um, the program was was run by a um, a very authoritarian person. Let's put it that way. Um, he felt that it was really important for him to always be the last person and the final say on whatever. He was definitely the uh, he was the editor in chief. Right? He, he while he was the teacher, he was also the editor in chief. Yeah. 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 And so um, I was expected to do the same thing, you know, because when you come in as a new young teacher, that's what they expect you to do: just take over their program and do it the same way. And um, I did for a while, you know, because you're new and everybody's watching you. So um, I did that for a while. But then I realized this just didn't work. You know, the kids did not like this at all. And uh, so I shifted and um, I decided to give them more control and and hope that no one noticed. <laughs> and <laughs> so you know, gradually, um, I was shifting more control to the students. But by the second year, I be, I'd become a little bit more empowered and brazen. And so I just threw the entire program out and started my own way of teaching. And that was pretty much collaborative. Uh, and not only that, I got rid of the book. Uh, it was a terrible book. Um, and I brought in newspapers on a daily basis. Uh, fortunately, the Mercury News, San Jose Mercury News, used to give me free papers. But then also, I went to, um, you know, have the, the little stands where they have a lot of free newspapers. Well, um, I just took 20 papers, um, and I, you know, had them for my students. And we used the real paper as, an exa- as a textbook, because that's what we were doing, writing for a real world and not just a high school newspaper. So I dramatically changed what was going on in the classroom. And you were teaching in modest circumstances, I think, sort of in a modular building? Well, when I first was teaching, I was they put me upstairs in this building called the Tower Building. I had a small room up there. And then after you know a couple of years, they moved me to... Um, what is called a portable, which is really a trailer that they drag onto campus and then put wooden right. slats around it so you can't see the wheels. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I was in a trailer for 30 years. That was, uh, wow. Yeah. I, I wish everybody listening could, could visit because I, I want to fast forward to today. Uh, now, when you visit Pali, there's a spectacular building called the, the Media Arts Center. And when you walk in, um, you don't first notice teachers, you notice students working with other students, uh, and you'll quickly see evidence of about 10 world-class publications, and it, it, you're, you're in this world-class facility, 
observing what looked like student-led enterprises, and you may find Wadge sitting in the in the kitchen, maybe having a little salad. Um, it it's really extraordinary I, when you you must smile when you when you visit that place. And I, how do you reflect on the the key ingredients to what? what I, I think is widely considered the best journalism program in the country. Well, I'm, first of all, really honored and excited to have that building. And it was supported by the taxpayers in Palo Alto. Yeah. Um, and also my colleague, Paul Kandel, um, who helped me get the whole thing going. You know, he was, he was so excited about this building. We were all excited about the building. So we had a lot of input into what was, you know, what they were planning. And uh, it's really a student-run system of publications. There's not just one publication. There's not just a newspaper. There's multiple magazines, and there's television, and we also have radio, and we have podcasting, and we have we make movies. So every, what we're trying to do there is to give every student who would like to be part of the program an opportunity to express themselves in any medium that they're interested in. And so they take a beginning journalism class that lasts 20 weeks. And then from that class, they have a choice of a variety of different um, ways of expressing themselves and ways of being involved. And the program has now about 700 kids involved. And yeah, and wow, that's amazing. part of, I mean, I would say the number one attraction that all these kids are going for is empowerment and freedom. They get to make a lot of decisions on their own and then they get to publish and it's in a highly respected publication. And so every, they all want to be part of it, which is for me, it's wonderful. So uh, Esther, maybe you could describe some students progress into leadership roles uh, for these, these various publications. So how, maybe you can describe some of the student leadership so on every publication, we have editors-in-chief, and then we have associate editors and page editors and senior writers. So what we try to do is allow – we disperse the power to some degree, and we allow as many kids as possible to have leadership roles because they're learning a lot about leadership and about collaboration and about working in a sort of high-stress environment – all, journalism is somewhat high stress because you always have a deadline and um, you have to collect the information and then you have to verify the information and you have to write it up in a way that everybody is going to want to read it. So the main, the main leaders are the editors-in-chief. And for example, in the student newspaper that I advise uh, together with my colleague Rod Satterwick, we have five editors-in-chief and those editors are in charge of the program. They really, they're doing it. And I and my colleague, we kind of keep an eye on, make sure that they don't need anything, that the program is kind of going the right direction. But for the most part, we really don't have to do much of anything because they're so smart. And these aren't just gifted kids. These are regular kids who rise to the occasion and become amazing. So if all kids are given an opportunity to have this kind of a leadership experience, they too 
can rise to the occasion because we have associate editors and page editors and advertising managers. All these publications are self-supporting. So the kids have to raise the revenue in order to get the publication to be published. So if they can't raise the revenue for some reason, it can be just online. But all all the revenue is raised. They do a great job. And uh, that's because they're really passionate about it and they own it. It belongs to them. It's their publication and they're really proud of it. Of course, I'm very proud of them. And so, you know, all the other advisors are proud of them. There's a total of seven advisors in addition to me now because we have so many kids involved in this program. Um, So, you know, 700 kids is a lot of kids. I sat in on uh, one of those editorial meetings and and high stakes um, and pressure filled does describe it. It, it, It's interesting um, that with students in charge and they really do take these publications very, very seriously. I've written a couple of times about the conditions under which um, teenagers do world-class work. the the Pali um, journalism program is one of a, a few places where I've witnessed teenagers doing really world class work, and I, I don't know how how might you summarize the conditions that exist that allow that to happen. You, you've talked about empowerment, right? What are the other conditions? Right. So. So I, most kids, when they come into the beginning journalism program, they are waiting for you to tell them what to do um, because that's the way they've been trained. We take them in the 10th grade. And so they've had 10 years of being told what to do. So initially, it's a little difficult for them to realize that they get to, to make these decisions. And one of the hardest things is for them to realize that they're in control. But that not only is it hard, it's exciting for them. It's just initially that is something that they have to learn how to do. But once they, once they, I mean, let me tell you, they learn how to do it pretty fast. And then once they feel confident being in control, then I th- th- what that does is it spreads to their entire life. They feel empowered and they feel like they, they can, you know, do anything that they want to do in all the classes that they're taking so that it spreads to their, you know, social studies, English, math, whatever. They feel much more capable as human beings. And this is, this is a skill or a, a way, a mindset, I should even say, a way of thinking about yourself that all students should have. And that all students should feel like they can they can achieve it no matter what. If you fail the first time, which is usually what happens when they're learning how to do this in the journalism program, they they make a lot of mistakes. You know, you can't write something right the first time. And sometimes kids have to revise like ten times. But it's there's no um, it's not considered shameful. In fact, it shows that you have the grit to consider continue doing that. And um, this, again, the, the fact that it's okay to fail and start again and do it again and do it again, this again spreads to all areas of their life. It's like, wow, I should be able to do this in my social studies class or my math class. And they do. And it, it impacts, 
it impacts their image of themselves, which is what you want them to to feel. You want them to feel empowered for life. Yeah, the the amazing thing that I've seen there is that kids are getting um, frequent and often really tough feedback, but it comes from peers um, or maybe of a maybe even an external audience, right? That a, a critic of their work. So it's really authentic. Um, either audience or peer feedback, it doesn't have to come from you as the teacher. It does not come from me. The majority of feedback comes from their peers or from the outside world when their you know their articles are published, but it's primarily peers. And the and there's a culture there where the, it's very important to establish a culture where we're all working together to produce this product that we want to be proud of. And so while we're criticizing what it is that you produced, we're not criticizing you. You know, we're trying to help you be a better writer or a better researcher or a better whatever it is that you're working on. So it's a it's a sense of camaraderie and community. It's a very supportive community. Actually, a lot of the kids say it feels like a very large family. Um and that's what we—that's what we're striving for, because they all try to help each other be the best that they can be. And again, this sense of community and family follows them through life. The, a lot of these kids remain friends for years, you know. And um, it's exciting for for me as a teacher to see how successful they can be. You know, Esther, uh, we see this. Um, somewhat frequently in, in really great sports programs that create a culture and a tradition of excellence and kids that grow up in a community, they want to grow up and be part of that sports team. And you've been able to do that in an academic program. And it, it's so exciting that I think even young people in Palo Alto know about the journalism program there. Um, it, it really is a great example of a flywheel of excellence in a in an academic program. Well, it's interesting that you said that about us, the sports team, because when I first started doing that, I was first started being you know the advisor for the newspaper there. I thought to myself, this was conscious. I want to have the same kind of team spirit that they have in the sports teams. I wanted this to be a team, an intellectual team. And I wanted all the kids to feel like they were part of a team. So one of the things that I, I mean, I did a lot of things that the teams do. So we had t-shirts that, you know, for the, I figured this is a team, right? And all the teams have like um, refreshments, you know, because, you know, they need it. And I feel like my kids need it too. and so. And then the whole mentality is like, we're working on this project together. Okay, maybe we're not playing a game, but our game is a newspaper or a magazine or a television. And, you know, that mentality works. The kids loved it. Esther, uh, in 2015, you published a fun book called Moonshots in Education. You launched a cool site called moonshots.org. Uh, what, what is the Moonshot Manifesto in, in short? So the Moonshots in Education book is was my first book, and it has a summary of 
what I do in the journalism program. In fact, I took a lot of my lesson plans and put them in there. And then I had a couple chapters that were written by my students to show exactly what kind of work students can do. I mean, they can write just as well as I can. And um, then there's a chapter in there about how to search intelligently, because that's one of the things kids need to know how to do. You're online, you need to get the information, need to get it right, you need to be able to evaluate the source. And then another chapter on just how to, or another part of the book, I should say, on just how to interview and how to reach out and get information. So that's a book that I targeted for teachers. And um, it's still there. It's still valuable. I must say, I, I think I need to revise it because some of the links in that book, uh, some of the companies, yep. they're not there anymore. <laughs> they change quick. <laughs> so, yeah, the tech world and tech world changes quickly. Um, but the ideas in the book are valid. Um, and so when I revise it, I'm going to add new links that hopefully will stay a little bit longer than this one. I, I love Moonshot because it really does outline uh, all the ways that you've been successful in creating autonomy and agency uh, in the classroom. You, you've also worked with the Uni University of Oregon on the uh, Journalistic Learning Initiative and captured a lot of your lessons learned on, on how to teach journalism, right? That's right. Um, the Journalistic Learning Initiative at the University of Oregon is one of the projects that I uh, worked on and I'm still working. It's, it's Professor Ed Madison that I've been working with for a few years, and we're in about 10 schools there where we send in um, journalism kids that have been trained as journalists in the University of Oregon, and they become mentors for the teachers to help the teachers implement journalism programs and seems to be very successful. And um, we also had a few schools in Los Angeles where we're also doing the same thing. And um, now what I'd like to do is be able to do this for more schools, you know, nationwide and, and worldwide because these skills are, they're fun and they're so effective and they help kids, you know, transition to the 21st century easily because we're using a lot of tech skills and we don't teach tech per se, but it's part of the program. So we do teach tech, but it's not like this. You're taking a tech class. It's like you're taking a journalism class. And by the way, you're going to need to know how to use tech in order to do it. Every kid should graduate with uh, a handful of really powerful production and presentation, uh, publication experiences. Um, everybody can learn more about this at journalisticlearning.com. All right, we've got to move on to these. <laughs> what we were supposed to talk about today is you have this great new book uh, out called How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Yes. Uh, so while you were leading the world's best journalism program, uh, you were also raising three extraordinary daughters, uh, Susan, who's now the CEO at YouTube, uh, Janet, who's a professor of pediatrics, and, uh, and Anne, who's the, the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. And now that I'm a grandparent, I also want to note that you have nine grand grandkids, right? That's right. Nine grandchildren and one more coming. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I only excited. have one, but one, one on the way. So, um, you, you have summarized a couple of the 
lessons learned in a great acronym uh, trick. So what what is the trick to parenting today? So this is the trick to parenting, but it's also the trick to the classroom. And it's right. also the trick to produce, to having a successful company uh, for the CEOs. So trick stands for the acronym stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And um, I'll tell you, it works like a charm in the classroom, and it works really well in, at, as a parent. It's a parenting trick. Um, so the first thing that I used to I actually, the first thing that's the most important is trust. And when you trust your kids as a parent or as an educator, they feel trust themselves. They feel much better about themselves because they're like, oh, that person I respect, trust me. And so, you know, I should trust my own instincts. So it's a very empowering way of thinking. And that's what happens in the classroom. I, I actually, I, I couldn't understand why all these kids were taking my class, to be honest. Um, and so uh, it was in the 1990s when the classes were really growing like crazy. I asked the kids, like, I don't really understand what's so special about this class. Why are you taking it? Other than I sort of had that, you know, fun team mentality. And I thought, well, maybe it's because it's fun, you know, or, you know, maybe it's like a team or I, I couldn't figure it out. Anyway, the number one thing they said to me is you trust us. And, you know, that didn't register. It took you know, they said it the next year, and I was like, God, there must be something to this trust business that I'm, I really don't understand. But it turns out that's the most important thing um, because that makes the difference. And that is what you were witnessing when you came to see the program. Those kids trust each other to give proper feedback, to respect each other, to take care of the program, to work together as a team. Trust is the key. And the same thing is true in parenting. You know, when you trust your child, trust them to just, I mean, even do little things around the house, you know, to um, help decide what to have for dinner that night or help decide what you're going to be doing this weekend. That's a very empowering thing for kids. And so that's the first part of the acronym. Yeah. Well, the, the first three are so related, trust, respect, and, and independence. Um, right. It's become so common since you and I um, were raising kids uh, to be helicopter parents, to be, you know, it feels like a dangerous world there. So how, how do we avoid uh, helicoptering as kids uh, get older? Well, you should avoid helicoptering totally, <laughs> because helicoptering is just the opposite of trust. So when you helicopter you're basically saying that I don't trust that you can do this by yourself. You're going to need some help. And by the way, I'm going to help you. And um, kids that grow up with helicopter parents tend to feel somewhat um, fearful when they have to do things on their own. And there's a friend of mine that wrote a book. She's the former dean of admissions at Stanford University, right. Julie Litcott-Haynes. And the reason she wrote the book is because a lot of these helicopter parents actually go to college with their kids and they are, they're moving in right. Well, they don't have the same housing, but they're moving close by so that they can continue 
to help their child in case there's any kind of problem. And we even have professors at major universities who complain that, you know, if something happens in the classroom, a parent will call up for an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old. So what are we training these kids to do? To be, you know, dependent on you all the time? Uh, it doesn't seem to work very well. So that's part of why um, I suggest starting not helicopter parenting early on, because your children are going to grow up to feel much more empowered and capable if you take that step to start. And I did that, by the way, everybody wanted to know, like, what did you do with your daughters? How did you get them to be so empowered the way they are? So I didn't have this acronym back then. I didn't know exactly, you know, what I was doing. I had to develop the acronym. Um, but one thing I knew from day one when they were born, the main thing I wanted to train them to be was independent. I wanted them to be able to do as much for themselves as they possibly could. I didn't want them to be dependent on anyone. Yeah. So, Esther, I have to, I have to ask you a hard question. As a father of of now-grown daughters, um, you have to be careful of what you wish for because I have I live in a house of uh, powerful <laughs> women. Um, there, there, there were times in the, particularly in the middle teenage years when, when this seemed unpleasant, right? Um, <laughs> where, yes. it was, where it was working itself out. So how, how do you make it through the, the teenage years when they're beginning to exercise their um, independence? Well, number one, you have to have a sense of humor. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> My husband used to say, I feel outnumbered here. Isn't this crazy? Right. And then, <laughs> I, I can, Stanley and I have to go get a drink. And that's true. Talk you about should. This. But, and then to top it off, you know, we had a dog named Truffle, a female dog okay. who produced nine puppies. Right. So he, he was like, wow. this is crazy. I cannot believe all these females in the family. Um, but actually, with the sense of humor, and, you know, as long as the girls didn't take themselves too seriously, it worked out yeah. pretty well. And, you know, I didn't, I never really had your typical teenage girl problems with my daughters um, in the sense that, oh. you know, they, they were always independent, but also thinking about other people. They were always kind. And I think people learn kindness not by you lecturing to them. They learn kindness by modeling after you. And um, somehow, I think that that came across. How, let's talk about expectations for a minute. Um, the, should parents set high expectations for both for behavior and, and achievement? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think you set high expectations. And then if they don't reach those high expectations, he's like, well, no problem. Let's just try again. And um, I think the, the problem comes when there's punitive action if the expectations are not met. Yeah. And, um, but if, if you have an idea that iteration is important, um, you know, that's basically the way that you should work. Um, just for example, like Susan when she she was the, as the oldest, she was the first one to take the PSAT test. Right. 
And, you know, I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I didn't realize, oh, my God, maybe this test is important. I didn't pay any attention. So she didn't prepare for it at all. As a matter of fact, the night before, she went out to a party. And um, then she took the test. And then, of course, she didn't get a very good great score. It was, like, kind of miserable. And I was like, Susan, maybe you should take this a little bit more seriously, you know? This is sort of, like, important to get into college. And um, so... The next time around, she did. You know, she got one of those books. It's an SAT prep book or something, and she studied for it. And, um, you know, and, and then her scores went up dramatically. Um, but, you know, I, there, was, there was no, I wasn't mad. You know, I figured that's her life. It's her choice. And, um, and then she wanted to do it. She personally wanted to improve her own scores. And so she did. Um, and I think that's held for pretty much everything in our lives or my children's lives. If they didn't do well, the idea was like, let's do it again until you get it right. And, um, and I think that that took a lot of the pressure off. Esther, you, um, you like to travel. You and Stanley have traveled a lot. Did you do that with your kids? Oh, yeah, we traveled. So um, we lived in Switzerland when my daughters were, Susan was 12, I think, 11 or 12, and Anne was in the first grade. And um, I sent them to the public schools in France. They just had to integrate. And again, this was tough, you know, because they didn't speak French. I'll tell you, they learned to speak French really fast. And, um, right. and they did really really well. And I thought that that was an important experience for them. They, they all say that that was great. And then we traveled a lot during the year since we lived in Geneva. Um, it was easy for us to get anywhere, you know, you're right in the center of Europe. So we took a lot of daily weekend trips all over the place. And, uh, so I think that it was fun. It was educational. We, they learned a lot about the world and about different people and how interesting it is to be in different countries. Yeah, it was wonderful. Travel is great for kids. Great for everybody, actually. Have you or your daughters developed some uh, useful tech management tools, particularly around screen time? Yeah, so we have limited time. The kids can't be on the internet uh, for an unlimited period of time. And what we've done and what my daughters have done is come up with a mutually um, decided amount of time. So the kids have input and the parents have input and they decide how much time is appropriate. And then the kids just maintain that schedule. And um, I know it sounds like it's impossible, but if the kids are part of the decision-making process and they decide how much time you know, they should have together with the parents. It's much easier to enforce because the kids came up with the idea and um, that works. But w the kids know that it's important not to spend too much time online because they know it's not good for them. And so they, they self-regulate a lot. And we, there's no phones at any of our dinner tables at all. And... Um, Nobody, not the parents either, because I think one of the problems that a lot of families have is the kids are not allowed to have the phones, but then the parents have it. And um, yep. and so kids do what they see you do. They do not they do. do what you say. 
So, you know, right. you have to monitor yourself as well. You cannot just expect the kids to do it. No, family agreements are really key. We've, we've talked about uh, publication experiences. What about the performing arts? Do you, are those important for kids and visual arts, I guess? Oh, yeah. Performing, art, performing arts is like, and visual arts is like journalism. These are projects that kids work on. You know, frequently they can work together, especially performing arts. You know, you're in a play. It, you build a lot of the same skills. So some, some kind of collaborative experience is really important for kids. Okay, so in the journalism situation, you have a product, but in in the performing arts, you also have a product that's just on stage, and so that's actually really great. And in sports, you also have a product, you've got a game, and so kids learn a lot of these, you know, the collaboration skills and um, communication skills by participating in all of these. I think the main advantage journalism has is that you're learning the writing skills, um, but you know, all the other programs are also incredibly valuable, and I recommend them highly. It's great if kids can even do all of them, but sometimes that might be just too much. What about exposing um, children and and uh, young adults to the world of work? Like how and when? What recommendations do you have there? Well, so um, all my grandchildren, they start working at the age of fifteen in some kind of local store, you know, I don't know, doing whatever is possible for a 15-year-old to do. In this case, there's like a a local um, game place where they can work and help other kids, or um, they apply for jobs. But I think it's important for them to realize that the the world works when everybody has a job and can contribute in some way to making the world better. So, I think all kids should have some kind of a of a job, um, and you need a work permit in California at the age of sixteen, and so you can apply for a work permit at school, and then do see whether or not there isn't something you can do. Could be walking a dog. One of my grandchildren set up a dog walking service and went around the neighborhood and handed out his cards, which he made himself, and um, you know I think that was pretty innovative. Um, I have another grandkid who did something that's uh, I think a lot of parents will relate to, but I thought it was crazy. She set up a slime business. <laughs> slime. I <laughs> I'm not a fan of slime, but it looks like all the teenage all the kids like slime. She was making slime and then selling little pots of slime, both online and in person. And she had quite a busy business is all I can say. But she, I did not buy any because I'm not interested. In, <laughs> I'm not a slime lover, but it looks like I'm not in the wrong sort of age group for slime. When did you let your girls know that you're uh, writing a book on how to raise successful people? I told them about two and a half years ago. And they're like, they all laughed. <laughs> like, mom, what? You're going to do what? You're going to write a book? And like, you've got too much going anyway. How are you going to write a book? They thought it was pretty funny. Anyway, then it started, you know, to happen. And and then also then I had to have them read the book in advance, right? Had to make sure they right. got everything right. How, how much? How much? How much editing did you allow them to do? Oh, actually, I gave them they could they could give me suggestions on anything, and I would change it. So I was very open to it. Um, 
it was pretty funny because in some cases, when I told the story, the book is full of stories. I, they would say, Mom, it wasn't me that did that. It was Susan or Janet would like, it was Anne. I know that. I didn't do it. And so that was, that was the main bone of contention of who did what. It was really uh, funny. What a, it, it, no, it's a delightful book. It is full of great stories. And wow, you can be super proud of uh, an amazing um, group of daughters and, uh, and equally proud of the, the legacy at, uh, of the journalism program at Pally. Esther, uh, it's been such a treat to talk with you um, about uh, both parenting and teaching. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm honored again. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I hope everybody enjoys the book, buys the book, and then can implement it in their own family. Because I think it will make a huge difference in making your family get along well. It will. How to Raise Successful People, Esther Wojcicki. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks to Esther for joining us today. We loved hearing from Esther about her new book and the important life lessons she shared with her children. Be sure to check out her book, How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. We'll have the book linked in the show notes and on our blog as well. Thanks for tuning in today. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline. And this is Mason. Signing off.